0: You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to
1: the Universe, your escape
2: to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Thursday, August 21st, 2014, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein.
0: Hi, everyone. How are you tonight?
1: Hello. Super. Good.
0: What's happening?
1: You know what's happening? What's happening? ...is that it's Sylvia Earle's birthday. Happy birthday, <laughs> Sylvia. Yay! Yay. Sylvia. You, is, is she you guys still kicking? Yeah, she's still kicking. She was born August 30th, 1935, in New Jersey, represent. And yeah, <laughs> she was, uh, just a couple months ago, she was on the Inquiring Minds podcast. She is, so she's 78, I guess she's 79 now, and... She's awesome. Like, instead of just being like, okay, I'm 79 now, I've done enough amazing things, I'm going to relax. She's continuing to be like a world explorer. So for those who don't know, she's a marine biologist, and uh she holds a number of records for things like uh the deepest dives, and uh she spent almost a year of her life underwater, um, she's basically. She's an explorer. She's like the sort of people you imagine with pith helmets. You oh, know? She's okay. gonna hold her
2: breath for a long time. <laughs>
1: she probably actually.
2: <laughs> she sounds like Captain
0: Janeway or something.
1: Yeah, I guess she is. She is a bit Janeway-esque. I think she seems. Super amazing. She has, in her later years, become a staunch supporter of uh, ocean conservation causes. She's pretty much dedicated her life to educating people about, for instance, the effects of climate change, uh, ocean acidification, problems like that, and supporting causes and even making her own organizations that focus on uh, increasing diversity in the sea. So, yeah, Sylvia Earle. She's a really, really rad lady.
2: All right. Well, we're going to start uh, with a, a news item about researching alternative medicine. Um, this, the news bit is that David Gorski and I got a, a peer-reviewed article published in uh, in the journal Trends in Molecular Medicine. The paper is clinical trials of integrative medicine, testing whether magic works. I know you guys have all read it already, right? Because it's available online. So here. Here, here's the main point of our paper. The question is, should we be investing research money into complementary and alternative modalities? Although that's it's really only a proxy question because I think that that leads to the question, well, how do you f- define alternative? And it turns out there really isn't a good operational definition. It's just whatever people want it to be. But the real question is, what should the relationship be between plausibility, prior plausibility, and, uh, research priority or, and, and, is, and are there any treatments that are so inherently implausible that we shouldn't waste a dime of public research funds on them? It seems obvious. Although, see, what the, the counter argument is that we're rigging the game ahead of time. You know, we're, what do you, how do you decide what's plausible? What go, what goes along with mainstream thinking? So then how are we ever going to change our knowledge if we only research stuff that we already believe in? But, and there's a little bit of truth to that. We do, I do agree that we need to go, you know, obviously we're doing research to discover new stuff and sometimes we want, might want to research crazy ideas because you never know when they might pay off.
0: Well, how about eliminating the the main ones, the ones that we have 100, 150 years of good research on in which nothing has come to fruition? Phrenology, for yeah. example, there should be no money going to phrenology. Uh, examinations. There's a lot of things in that That's an category. Extreme example, but yeah. yeah. But,
2: then, but there, but there is stuff around like homeopathy. I believe that sure. absolutely fits into the category of let's not waste another dime researching this. It's 100% magic, but it is a spectrum, right? It's a continuum. And the question is, how far down that road are we going to go? I liken it to investing in your future, investing money, right? So it's like the standard investment advice is, Uh, You know, put 60% of your money into really safe, secure, um, investments. Low yield, but totally secure. And then, you know, 30% you could put into medium risk that there's some risk involved, but you're going to get higher yields. And then 10% you could do the risky investments. Probably not going to pay off, but if they do, you can make a lot of money. And that's kind of a basic uh, uh, approach to research as well. Most of what we do, we, we want to make sure we have a very high uh, probability that we're going to get some kind of bang for our buck, and then increasingly less money spent on increasingly less you know plausible uh, ideas or notions. But in alternative medicine, there are ideas that go that they're not akin to a risky investment. They are akin to playing the lottery. And or worse, I mean, they're 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 akin to buying magic beans. You know, they're not yes, even playing yes. the lottery. That's right. Uh, and at at that's someone
0: where- will win a lottery. Nobody will ever grow giant beanstalks <laughs> oh. out of magic beans. Exactly. So called magic beans.
2: So yeah, like homeopathy, for example. And Evan, you're correct. I mean, you know, we've, er- there's already thousands of studies in acupuncture and collectively they cannot demonstrate that acupuncture works for anything. So are we going to do another, you know, several thousand studies? Is that likely to significantly change the result of the studies that we've already done? I, I have argued no. I-, I don't think it will. Um, and there's a lot of reasons not to do this research. We have limited research resources, and that's not just money. It's researcher time. It's space. It's patience. You know, you only have so many patients who have certain diseases or conditions or symptoms and who are willing to come into clinical trials. And often that's a limiting factor is your ability to recruit those patients. So are you going to recruit them for a treatment that likely does work, or that's a long-shot, implausible, magical therapy? so it also takes up time and you know space in conferences and papers and you know intellectual resources uh so it, it it can waste a lot of a lot of those limited resources in addition in the and here's here's my big problem with doing research in the world of cam that this is not being done in a vacuum it's not just that these studies are implausible, is that these studies are being promoted within a culture that does not respect science or the outcomes of science. So what ends up happening is this. This has been documented endlessly in the pages of science-based medicine and, and elsewhere that this is, this is what happens. This is the rule, not the exception, that alternative uh, practitioners, when they do research, first of all, they follow the famous quote, I know it's it's often incorrectly attributed to Mark Twain uh, that they use scientific research as a drunk uses a light post for support <laughs> rather than for illumination. illumination. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, it's just it's perfect. So they they just use it to cherry pick positive results. They also distort the results of the science. Like every time an acupuncture study is negative, they say it's positive, you know, because the placebo acupuncture worked too. So therefore, it works. They also overhype and overinterpret. False uh, preliminary data, or they misuse n- preclinical data for clinical claims. They try to change the rules of science by using pragmatic studies as if they were efficacy trials, which they're not, uh, or again, to misrepresent placebo effects. And they never stop what they're doing or selling their services or products because of evidence of lack of efficacy. So it's a win win for them. They take whatever results, doesn't matter, they don't change what they do, they'll distort them to being positive or they'll just ignore them. If they happen to get a false positive result, then that becomes justification for whatever they've already believed or already doing. Um, as from the scientific point of view, it's a completely lose-lose proposition. It's a farce. And funding a farce like that does a disservice to everybody. All it is is providing false legitimacy and a patina of scientific legitimacy to what is largely fraudulent. So unless the regulations and the institutions are willing to hold uh, practitioners of alternative medicine to the results of actual rigorous clinical trials – there literally is no point to doing the research and all you're going to accomplish is giving false legitimacy to unscientific magical therapies.
0: Jeez, that's the whole reason why they are considered alternative because they don't follow the scientific method. They don't adhere yeah. to all the all the rules that you're supposed to when, when going through experimentation.
2: Yeah, exactly. If they didn't, they wouldn't be in the CAM category to begin
0: with.
3: So, Steve, the goal then is not to try to figure out how – you know, what to research, but to go, you got to go a step higher and, you know, hold them accountable or something so that that doesn't continue because that kills it. I mean, it's, it's irrelevant. Yeah. What, whatever you do, like you said, it's win-win for them. So we got to take a step back and approach it from another direction.
2: Yeah. My open challenge is always, you know, point me to an alternative modality that practitioners abandoned because scientific evidence showed it didn't work. Nobody can ever do that because it doesn't exist. So it's pointless. All right, well, Evan, at least we're better off though than uh, the Islamic schools which are just outright banning. Science. Oh my oh, god.
0: Wow. This is a this is a big a oh, big problem. Yeah, I first saw this posted the other day by Sean Carroll. Thank you, Sean, for posting that for everyone. And this comes to us courtesy of the website english.alarabia.net. And I'll I'll read right from their piece because they do a good job in, in summing this up. The Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, also known as ISIS, has established an Islamic curriculum for students living in the Syrian northern city of Raqqa and banned the study of philosophy and chemistry. And this was reported by the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, SOHR. Now ISIS is a jihadist group. They're widely regarded as a terrorist organization by several countries in the world. Um in its self-proclaimed status as a caliphate, it claims religious authority over all Muslims across the world and aspires to bring much of the Muslim inhabited regions of the world under its direct political control. And part of that is the re-education of the people under which they've fallen under their control. And they're trying to expand their region right now. They've got footholds in Syria. They've got footholds in Iraq, and according to what they're telling us, they want to spread even further. And the militants called on teachers and school directors to prepare an Islamic education system in the schools of Raqqa, which would be reviewed by a board of education appointed by ISIS. The decision to remove chemistry and philosophy from the curriculums comes as ISIS militants say they do not fit in with the laws of God. And again, that's reported
4: to us by Sohr.
2: I was trying to find out, like, why chemistry and philosophy. It seems like two random disciplines. You know? I
4: had the same thought. Like, did they ever explain that, Ev?
0: Well, they they couldn't find anything to say why they started with that. I don't think that's the end of it, though. I mean, it's going to yeah, probably, probably yeah. spread into other 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 sciences, other aspects of education overall. I mean, does who, do they have a knows? problem with
1: acids and bases? Yeah, it's the I, chemistry that's more baffling than the philosophy, because I think philosophy is often, I think, the cause of people uh, realizing that their religion is bunk. I mean, it was for me, and I feel like a lot of other people go through that. Once you realize, you can think critically about, you know, the, the ideas that religion tends to have dominance over. Uh, so I can see them, you know, having a, an excuse to ban philosophy, but yeah, chemistry is a bit random sounding. Also, I mean, it's obviously terrible that
3: the kids won't be able to learn about things like chemistry, but something about me feels kind of good about these militants not knowing about chemistry in terms <laughs> of gunpowder and all sorts of uh, 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 nasty things like that.
1: Well, I feel like maybe practical sciences are still... Unfortunately, at their hands. That'll be for yeah. the chosen few. But uh, the other
2: thing is probably you wonder how different would this be than say fundamentalist Christians in this country if they were completely in charge of education? We yeah, wouldn't yeah. be any education about evolution or the Big Bang or, or similar things, right? And
3: geology. They've, they've some of them have mentioned geology and other uh, other sciences that are kind of tangential yeah. to uh, to those beliefs. Yeah, perhaps because the
0: chemistry and philosophy perhaps support some of the other more, um, other aspects of, you know, scientific edge based, Western based education that they're going to start tearing it down just with those two legs. And eventually they'll probably start pulling other legs out and, uh, you know, inserting it with more uh, religious teachings and so forth. And it's too bad because, um, there have been attempts to reform education and science education in Middle Eastern countries. Um, and there's been, at least some people have written a sort of a resurgence of science in the region after, you know, it's been kind of put down for quite a long time as, as one area of the world in which science education is, is lacking. But here, I found this from an article in the economist just from last year, tens of thousands of people flocked to a convention called 101, one thousand one inventions, a touring exhibition about the golden age of Islamic science. And what they're talking about is the time between like the eighth and 13th centuries when the region was experiencing sort of an enlightenment in it's fields am- of amazing, and amazing. medicine, and mathematics. That's right. Yep. Yep. And this was happening in, in the Qatari capital of Doha. They are realizing that there's an economic aspect to this at all in that scientific research yields to, you know, better standards of living and, and other things that come along with it. Um, Saudi Arabia's King Abdullah. University of Science and Technology. He's funded it with a $20 billion endowment. Whoa. That's, which is a nice so wow. they say. Rich American universities envy the, those kinds of uh, amounts. They're, they're in collaborations with uh, the universities of Oxford and Cambridge, uh, Imperial College in London, Um, research spending overall in the re, in the regions have gone up. Qatar bumping from 8% of their, of their GDP to 2.8% of their GDP. And other things going on, too. The, their output of scientific papers in a country like Turkey. Um, in 2000, they had 5,000 papers. In 2009, they put out 22,000 papers. So it was, you know, there was real progress sort of going on. And groups like ISIS do under, you know, undermine the stability and unfortunately threaten to, to, Throw certain areas of the of the region back into uh, into uh, substandard science times.
1: And when we talk about the region, just to be clear, we're talking about the region just on the Iraq border, right? Uh, that's the the region that's primarily controlled by ISIS.
0: Well, right, right. Syria, Syria, parts of Syria, and uh, sort of northwestern sections of
1: Iraq. Those are right now under their under their control, but they're looking to expand. Well, Indonesia just enacted a ban on ISIS, which, you know, could be an issue of free speech, but at the same time, maybe it might be a good thing. I don't know. Indonesia being – I think th- I think Indonesia is the largest Muslim country in the world. People – like Muslims are definitely pushing back hard against ISIS's spread. So, I don't know. Hopefully, this won't spread much further than where it what? is at the, the moment.
2: All right. Well, Rebecca – Yes.
1: Get us up to speed
2: on the melting of the polar ice caps. <laughs>
1: I really wish I had good news to follow up that. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. That's super depressing story. Uh, unfortunately, I do not. Uh, back in 2010, uh, researchers launched a satellite that, uh, was specifically looking at the, uh, altitude basically of ice in both the Arctic and Antarctica. And, uh, it's called the CryoSat spacecraft. And yeah, what they found was that, uh, you know, after just four years of study, they found that, uh, between the two largest ice sheets, uh, meaning in Greenland and in Antarctica, uh, they together are dumping about 500 cubic kilometers of ice every year into the ocean. Um, what the, the satellite attempts to figure out is uh you know the the losses of the ice sheet which which includes um uh, you know chunks dropping off into the sea and also occasionally you know there's more buildup from snowfall. And so there are some places where the snowfall has built up uh to sort of recover some of that area, but not nearly enough to take care of this incredible loss. Basically, the amount of ice that Greenland has been losing uh, doubled since the satellite ha- was launched. Wow. So it's really not great, not great news. And it's not just um, information from the Cryosat spacecraft. The researchers are uh, using that data and combining it with other models uh, that other researchers mm-hmm. are doing in order to get a really detailed picture of what's happening. And it all sort of supports the same unfortunate conclusion, which is that things are, are going horribly, horribly wrong. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's that's the that's the news. <laughs> that's the news from the ice sheets. Uh-huh.
0: So have we noticed the sea rise, uh, yet? Have we measured that in conjunction with the, uh, the loss of ice? Sea
1: rise, that's a very good question. Uh, sea rise measurement wasn't a part of this particular study, but using the numbers that they've come up with, they suspect that. It's like a couple millimeters a year. It's, basically. uh, yeah, it's just over a millimeter per year. I just wanted okay. to double check my, yeah, numbers. guys. 1.9, but yeah, it's.
4: Do you get the same, like, knee-jerk, visceral reaction that I do when I hear stuff like this? Like, I'm... First, I I have, like... It's disbelief, like, we're really letting this happen? Then I slip into, how could pe- people possibly not believe this type of evidence? Well,
2: let me tell you, Jay. So I've been poking <laughs> around just seeing what people are writing about Antarctic, uh, Antarctica specifically because that's a little bit more of a complicated story. Yeah. And I've heard uh, those who doubt global warming for years say, well, the Antarctic ice is increasing, but it's actually not true. Um, the ice – see, uh, Arctic is just all Arctic polar ice. There's no continent under there. Greenland has – it's one basically giant glacier on top of it. Antarctica has an eastern ice sheet, a western ice sheet that's land ice. and Then it also has sea ice. So the sea ice – it completely goes away during the summer months in Antarctica and then expands during the winter months incredibly, whereas you know the Arctic ice doesn't go away completely. Uh, in Antarctica, um I believe it's the western ice sheet which is losing most of its mass. The the eastern has been increasing a little bit recently, but the net there's a net loss of land ice in Antarctica. And when ice goes into the into the ocean, that raises sea levels, whether or not it melts. As you know, you know, ice takes up the same amount of space whether it's floating or melted. So melting, floating ice doesn't raise the sea levels. But when ice goes from land to sea, that's what raises the sea levels. Um, so we're, the big concern is the un- the instability of the ice sheet. Will the, will the, the Greenland ice sheet or any of the – either of the two ice sheets in Antarctica become unstable to the point that they'll basically slide into the ocean? And that, that would be a problem. Um, so that's the concern, but so here's one of the things that they say. So there was I found one article searching on this. Um, on this is on uh, Breitbart, where they were saying that a study was published showing that there are volcanoes under the Western Antarctic ice sheet, and that is the real source of the loss of ice of the global warming. Uh, but then of course that's while that's true, that a paper was published showing that there is some magma and some volcanic activity intermittently underneath the Western ice sheet, the authors of that study responded and said, nope, that's not the primary cause. That actually is only contributing very little to the overall melting of ice in the Western Antarctic ice sheet. The rest is caused by rising sea temperatures, uh, by global warming. So the the deniers just will cherry-pick and, you know, make whatever argument uh, supports, you know, dismisses global warming or cast doubt on it. But when you actually drill down to the bottom of what does the evidence actually say, what are the scientists saying, it doesn't support their position.
1: Yeah, the the, arg- the mainstream arguments against it, the goalposts have, I think, shifted quite dramatically in the last yeah. couple of years to, you know, it's obviously happening, you know, and there's really very little argument uh against that. And so now they're just focusing on the why yeah. and yeah, they're reaching for anything they can. Uh, one other thing I wanted to mention um, that is also in the news right now is something that actually occurred back in 2012 when uh, the Canadian Ice Service took some recordings of the Arctic ice uh, melting and found that the uh, ice was at the lowest point ever recorded. And so, of course, they wanted to go and tell Canadians about this. But unfortunately, even though they are taxpayer funded, they had to before they could even hold a press conference, a purely informational press conference about their findings, uh, they had to seek approval from nine different levels in the government, which went from the director of the ice service up to the environment minister's office. And somewhere along the line, uh, in the, the sixth layer, which was ministeri- ministerial services, uh, the briefing was canceled. And the allegations that are flying around right now from the scientists and those that are feeling as though their research is being basically uh, hidden at this point, uh, is that the conservative government is thwarting their efforts to... Keep the world informed about their findings on global warming, and it's pretty—it's a pretty large story that I'm unfortunately not seeing a ton of press about right now because it seems—I was about to say—if true, but I—I've yet to see anything to suggest that it's not true. Documents have just been released uh, showing that it's true, Uh, and there's an article on Canada.com that people can read that's very thorough. And it does sound as though, uh, you know, the only thing that's up in the air is whether or not this was a purposeful muzzling of scientific data, or whether it's just that scientific data is being caught in this horrible web of red tape, to the point where scientists who are doing very important research that impacts our daily lives, can't inform the people who are actually paying for that research about their results, so it's, it's a pretty disturbing situation and hopefully voters will continue to demand answers from their government as to why that's happening and maybe some changes can be made to the process they have by which the information from this research can be released to the general public.
2: Yeah. I mean, at the very least, you know, we should have transparent information.
1: Yeah. And the, it's funny because the scientists involved were just incredibly frustrated because uh, American scientists sort of swooped in and were doing all of the press releases and the you know the press events about this news, while you know the Canadian researchers were effectively you know gagged, and yeah, apparently it was quite frustrating for them to not be able to step up and answer questions and help in the uh, yeah the you know dispersal of information.
2: All right, so we're all going to die. All right, yep. next next news item. <laughs> Bob, you're going to tell us about S- slowly. A, a cool animal, Hallucinogenia, one of my favorites. Is that one of those toads you lick? <laughs> no, you <laughs> might think so.
0: Is a, that's a hypno toad.
2: Are you still recording? Fine.
3: Yeah, this is this was a lot of fun to research. Lucigenia, that weird acid trip creature from the Cambrian explosion, may actually have a direct descendant alive today, meaning that it wasn't an evol- evolutionary dead end after all. Like I, I guess people have believed for for quite some time, um, evidence seems to point to a relationship with this, uh, an existing species of worms. Of all the diverse life forms in the Burgess Shale, it's funny that probably the only one 90% of the people remember is this one guy, this one freaky example that, it's uh, the that you, that you child. see every. Yeah, right, exactly. So, this this uh, creature and others was found over a century ago by paleontologist Charles, Charles Walcott. And uh, these uh, 500 million year old fossils, and they were a bonanza for two reasons. The, uh, the soft tissue preservations uh, was in- as incredible as it was rare, truly amazing. Uh, plus, the, the diversity that the Cambrian explosion uh, is of uh, the new body designs, uh, which is the be- at the beginning of mul- multicellular life, was just extraordinary. In fact, all the, all the modern phyla that exist today were pretty much there, except for one that I'm aware of, a uh, bryozoa. Uh, they could all be traced back to this Cambrian explosion. I was surprised in my research to find out that uh, when had, uh finished his research in the in the mid twenties, I think he, it, it was stopped by his death, which is a pretty final way to end things. It actually took decades before people really took a serious look at at not only what he did, but what also was there. And it was only then, I think, in the sixties, that they really said, "Whoa." This is this is impressive stuff here. Um, I, I had just assumed that it was just world renowned ever since he uh, started finding that stuff in the in the I guess the teens in the 1920s. But it, it took a while before people really understood what was there and what he had done. Now the soft body fossilization is uh, it's really just one of the holy grails of paleontologists because it, it is very rare. Typically, you don't have hard parts like bones or hard shells uh, fossilized. I I learned a new word during during this research. uh, Taphonomy. Taphonomists study the fossilization process for animals. uh, What it takes to get them to get in the ground and pretty much turn to stone. And I love the expression I came across. They they say from the biosphere to the lithosphere. Which is pretty much what's happening. So it, it turns out that the soft body parts were able to uh, fossilize with s- such exquisite resolution because of the clay. The clay particles that were in there it was pretty key to the soft tissue preservation. A lot of people think that uh, it had to have been like anoxic, oxy- oxygen deprived, because that way that would uh, you know retard the decay of the uh, of the tissues and then allow it to fossilize. But the, but it, that really wasn't the case. There was plenty of oxygen oxygen in there. But the clay reduced the permeability of the of it the clay particles, um, and that prevented the oxygen from getting around, uh, which would have uh, which would have prevented a lot of that from happening people uh, this was interesting as well i wasn 't aware of this. People often say that hallucinogenia was so weird that they depicted it initially upside down and backwards, so uh, if you could picture the creature it 's got these uh, a whole bunch of uh, squiggly legs on the bottom, 8 to 12 or whatever, and then on top on, on its back were these uh, row two rows of spiky, like these spikes. Initially, they depicted the spikes down as the legs, and uh, the legs up on top, but that was really because uh, the initial fossils didn't show two rows of legs, so it kind of looked like these squiggly tentacles, like a line of tentacles, one line going down the back. They were They did not look like legs. So, Given that information, it seemed pretty reasonable that uh, that that initial orientation kind of made sense. Well, what happened was that when they, uh, when they found further fossils, they realized that uh, that there were two rows of legs, and the spikes were not were not the legs and in fact, uh, for some of the older fossils, uh, the legs were there, but they were in another plane. In the rock, so you couldn't – so say the rock cracks and you've got this face. The legs were at another plane at an angle to the flat surface, so they didn't even see them. They didn't, they didn't even notice them because they weren't visible. So it kind of makes sense. It's not as goofy as you think then. Oh, it's upside down and backwards. Being backwards is a different thing because that's – it was actually kind of hard to distinguish the head from the tail. And uh, I'm not sure if they're – I think they're pretty confident now, but it was kind of hard to tell. As I mentioned earlier, it's been thought for a while that hallucinogenia was an evolutionary dead end. Uh, there was nothing that really definitively linked it to modern or, or even later animals. So, uh, some people believe though that there might be a link to this, uh, weird legged worm, uh, that's found in tropical forests today. They're called velvet worms. Look them, look them up. They're really, they're really kind of cool. Um, so these velvet, velvet worms are called anicorphorans. What is that, velvet? It's, uh, it's this connection between these two guys that look stronger than ever thanks to their claws. So they really did high magnification of the claws, which, which really had never been investigated before that deeply for the uh, hallucinogenia. It turns out that both of these species have this special type of claw that consists of these multiple, like onion like layers, layers of claws uh, on top of each other. And it's, it's thought that this would be beneficial during molting, uh, which kind of makes sense since typically after a molt, you're, you're very vulnerable. But if you already have this partial claw, Ready to go, if not 100 percent, but it you know, could have been 60 or 70 percent fully formed and, and fully hardened, then that's obviously way better than just having a completely uh, soft uh, you know, non-claw that takes a while to, uh, to harden. So I guess these claw layers are, are so rare, if not outright unique, that uh, the, it's, this is what's making the scientists very confident. That one is the descendant of the other, so that's really cool. So uh, now, hallucigenia is still alive in a sense uh, in these velvet worms. And come uh, check them out and uh, maybe learn more about them.
1: I just want to say that velvet worms are the cutest worms that have ever existed. Yes,
3: aren't they awesome? Yeah, they have. Aww.
1: They have little nubby <laughs> feet.
2: <laughs> I wanted to know what they were related to. Uh, they're related to the velvet worms. Yeah. Well, they're obviously they're in their own phylum. Right. The, what's the most closely related phyla to the the velvet worms well they did th- they think it was arthropods, but it's not What I found out was that they are in a superphylum ooh with uh, arthropods okay and nematodes and tardigrades oh, oh the yeah. water bear the, the bug. water bears they <laughs> are
3: awesome they could survive in
1: space you did they, you know, know in space awesome. they're also
2: called moss piglets. Sounds like Did a sci- that, sci-fi uh, film.
1: That's awesome. There's one type of uh, velvet worm called the peripatopsis that uh, <laughs> the male just comes wherever it wants on the female. <laughs> and then the sperm just sinks into its body <laughs> and then no. migrates to her ovaries. Oh, my God. That's uh,
0: osmosis sort of So, pregnancy. yeah, it's like she
1: spermosis. could
3: be – Spermosis. Spermosis. Good. She
1: could get a facial and still get pregnant.
3: Okay. <laughs> that that would change the face of porn. Literally. So, <laughs> sort of ah, yeah. Just need to do
1: it.
2: Ectosozoa, That's the superphylum. Ectosozoa. It includes arthropods, tardigrades, and the velvet worms. And nematodes and a couple of the small, a couple of the worms.
3: Nematodes are pretty amazing creatures as well.
2: I was also reading about the. So I, I am fascinated with the Cambrian fauna, and I was reading uh, this one paper about it. It's A little technical, but what they were saying was that you know, as you get closer and closer to the Cambrian, you know, back in time, that animals actually look less and less distinct. You know what I mean? Like the phyla themselves begin to get fuzzy around the edges because mm. they haven't fully separated out yet you know what i mean so it's it's, because whatever characteristics you you use to try to define a phylum obviously they couldn't have always existed so if you get like early into cambrian you actually start to have creatures which may not really cleanly they may be in like two different merged phyla you know right right yeah, that makes sense. I don't think they have yet found the creature that is the most basal arthropod, you know, like the ancestor to all arthropods. The platonic ideal of
1: arthropods. Yeah. <laughs> the platonic
0: ideal. What would they call that? The first pod, the <laughs> alphapod. <laughs> the alphapod. Alphapod, alpha pod, nice.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, everyone, we're going to take a break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, Personal Capital.
1: As we all know, there are basically two barriers to growing your wealth. Number one, how do you keep track of all those monies? You've got stocks and 401ks and bank accounts and money just pouring out of your mattress. Uh, How do you keep track? Uh, you you need you need like some graphs or something. Uh, you can't have them all on different websites with different usernames and different passwords. It's that's really inconvenient. And number two, you always have to pay somebody to manage your money. And honestly, if you're doing that, you're probably paying too much.
4: Rebecca clearly does not have children or a mortgage because I'm telling you, you need to track your finances. So personal capital is no joke. It brings all your accounts into one dashboard. You can see everything. It'll help you track everything. The software is easy to use. It's very, it's intuitive. And that's what you want when it comes to your finances. You don't have to spend a lot of time worrying about how is it? You have to know where they are and how the, how your finances are doing when you need to know it.
0: And those fees, Rebecca, you mentioned those fees. Forget it. You're, it, this is going to show you how much you've been overpaying in those fees and how to reduce those fees. So you're going to save money at the same time. And you'll get tailored advice on optimizing your investment. So don't wait. Signing up takes just a minute. It'll pay dividends.
3: So guys, to set up your free account, go to personalcapital.com SGU. Personal Capital is free and the smart way to grow your money. But first, you have to go to personalcapital.com SGU. Well, thanks for all that free advice, guys. Anytime, Steve. Anytime, anytime.
2: Now let's get back to our show. Well, Jay, we're going to move to another animal, uh, this time gorillas and bonobos, and you're going to tell (laughs) us if you think that gorillas and bonobos can communicate with humans.
4: Yeah, it's interesting. I'll see what you think after I'm done sharing this information with you, because I still don't know. I don't think really anybody knows the answer. We can only speculate. So- Little backstory. In 2001, Robin Williams spent an afternoon with Coco the gorilla. I don't know if you guys know about that. I watched the video. It was, uh, it was really endearing. It was awesome, his interaction with Coco. And, you know, Coco was like having a lot of fun with him and they were tickling each other. And, you know, it's, it's a cool thing. You should take a look if you can get a chance. Coco was born on July 4th, 1971, in the San Francisco Zoo.
1: Cool. My Coco- birthday.
4: Yeah, is that funny, Bob, on the 4th of July? Oh,
1: maybe you're
3: twins. (laughs) What are the the odds? Two million to one.
4: Coco's trainer is named Francine Patterson, also known as Penny. And Patterson claims that Coco can understand more than a thousand signs based on American sign language and understands about 2,000 English words. And when Robin Williams died last week, it was reported that Coco was told the news and was visibly mourning his death. And trainers claim that Coco understands the finality of death, and they could see, you know, her quivering and all that. That different different ways they were explaining how Coco was
3: showing that she fully
4: understood everything.
3: Well, Jay, the one way I read, the one way that I read that really stuck with me was they said that Coco became quiet and looked very thoughtful, which to me was almost laughable. That you yeah. would you would take that and therefore conclude that she, she was having this emotional reaction to to somebody from what. 13 years ago that she met once had died. I was like, what really? Wow. That's, that's an amazing conclusion to come to just from being quiet and thoughtful. Seems like a jump. Apparently. All right. Sorry, Jay. Go ahead.
4: Yeah. So the, the reason why what Bob said is correct. And you know, the problem with statements like this is that many other claims of Coco's ability to understand and communicate are in debate and have actually been for a long time. There's no doubt, right? That Coco's smart. Coco's a smart gorilla. Um, But really the primary question here is after significant research or what we thought was significant research and a ton of money spent over decades, what have we learned about apes and their ability to understand and use language? So this goes pretty far back. Studies go back to the 1930s when scientists wondered why apes don't have language or at least they don't have language like humans use it. It was speculated that, you know, culture probably was a big factor in it. And that if apes were raised like humans, that they would be able to use language like humans do, exactly, or very similarly to the way humans do. Now, there's a lot of things that right now you could be saying because we know a lot of the scientific answers to, to some of these problems, but back in the thirties, they didn't know. Experiments were started. They raised infant apes and humans in the same environment and they had no success, you know, very little, very small success, but definitely not what they were hoping. Some things were learned, but there, there was no, were even close did they have anything close to human language. And as the decades passed, scientists discovered that there were significant anatomical differences that don't allow other primates to speak. Particularly in humans, you know, our tongue and our larynx are very um flexible and our larynx is down deeper in our throat and it just behaves differently and and you know, it's evolved to um to handle language most definitely. It was at this time though, that the idea of teaching ape sign language came out and in the 1960s another new experiment was started raising an ape from childbirth incorporating sign language in the ape's upbringing and it was reported that 250 signs were learned but even this early experiment had skeptics now we move into the 70s and more studies were started and apes were given human names and other ape species studied studies were launched and you know apes were being treated much much more human and in a much more human environment eating human food and a lot of um, studies were just treating them exactly like bringing up a child. Coco was one of the most famous of this time and another ape, Kanzi, who was a, a bonobo.
2: Bonobo, yeah. they're Bonobo, awesome. you ever guys
4: see? Yeah, they're cool, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah.
2: Along, along with those they're studies- basically came, hypersexual chimps. That's exa- right. Exa- exactly. You'd
4: know, Steve. So along with those studies <laughs> came heated debate over whether apes are using sign language the same way that humans are, and how much they really understand? So a glaring difference is that humans like to chit chat, right? So when we do compare humans and apes, we are incredibly social. We chit chat. We talk to strangers in elevators. You know, we, we're 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 in a constant state of meeting new people, coming and going. Um, you know, you can have small talk with perfect strangers. You could have small talk with your mom. You know, it's a, it's just a part of who we are. However, apes aren't. They flat out are just not anywhere near as social as we are. And studies show that 4% of ape communication was based on socializing. You know, and if you flip that, you know, 96% of their communication was, was mostly about getting things done. I want this. Give me that. That type of stuff. The core debate is many believe that apes use sign language similar to, and this is my idea of describing it, but it, the description is very close to facilitated communication. So if you don't know what that is, a, a quick description of that is say that somebody um, has some type of brain damage, of course the shades of gray are infinite, but someone that can't actually speak or really do anything other than maybe gesture, like as the example, they would take the alphabet that would be printed out on a card and then the child would point to letters uh, and then the, the person that is interpreting what, what they're spelling out would would talk for them.
2: It's worse um, than that. Jay. No, it's worse than that. They moved the hand. The facilitator was moving the hand of the child for them. Yeah. And the, the claim was that the, the child was guiding them. They were just supporting the hand, but clearly the, the facilitator was the one doing the communication. They were actually spelling out the words and moving the, the, the client's hand around. As, well, especially when the facilitatee
3: wasn't even looking at the letters
2: yeah
4: yeah you I mean the 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 child or whoever the brain damaged person was not even visibly seeing what they were supposedly pointing at, and then they were making intelligent sentences out of that you know so without getting too deep into that, you get the idea that the facilitator the pr- you know the per the, the nurse or the parent or whoever that was directing the child 's hand is the one really doing the talking so people are are making some claims that reminded me significantly of facilitated communication so let me, let me explain this a little further. I'll give you an example of Coco did a chat on AOL. I think this was back in 1998. So here, so I'll, I'll read to you the, the chat. So there's a question and then Coco's response and then the Patterson, the trainer and what she had to say. So first off, the question, what are the names of your kittens? And Coco signed the word foot. Patterson says foot isn't the name of your kitty. Another question comes in. Coco, what are the name? What what's the name of your cat? Coco says no. Patterson says she just gave some vocalization there, some soft puffing. And then the host said, uh, I heard some soft puffing as well. Then Patterson says now now she's shaking her head no. And then another question comes in. Do you like to chat with other people? And Coco said fine nipple. Patterson said nipple rhymes with people. She doesn't sign people per se. She was just trying to do a sounds like. Mm.
1: Uh, so, okay. I, I've read other. Girl just wanted to like see this. some nipples online. We've all been yeah. on chat roulette. <laughs> 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 <Get them> now, <laughs> wow. I don't want to get too far in the okay. woods
4: on this. I read a lot about this. But, Coco happens to be obsessed with nipples, right? I know this sounds funny, but Coco, like I guess, you know, Coco's just fascinated with people's nipples and often, you know, lifts people's shirts up and wants to see people's nipples, right? So for Patterson to say in this dialogue that nipple rhymes with people, no, Patterson knows that Coco is obsessed with nipples and says the word nipple all the time. And and knows what nipples are and wants to see people's nipples. She's clearly covering and just doing a a form of facilitated communication here where this happens quite a bit, where there's a lot of evidence that shows that Patterson really is covering for the fact that Coco is – You know, just not really saying that much.
2: Yeah, so I mean, this has been the the skepticism for decades, and they haven't really, the researchers haven't resolved it, which I think means that, you know, these primates are simply not communicating in the way that we think of language. So it does seem that they can learn signs, and they may even be able to associate those signs with certain things. So that's like a simple association. But they don't necessarily have... A language in their head, you know what I mean? they're not stringing together words and ideas in a way that that humans do. they're just associating signs with things until they get what they want uh or just reacting to stimuli that's being presented to them, and the in the trainer is doing a lot of interpreting, you know I've read some too, like where Jay one that stuck out with me was when the The primate was asked a question. They gave an answer that was wrong, and the trainer said, "Oh, they're just joking, sometimes they give the wrong answer because they're trying to be funny. Yeah, yeah. or exactly. maybe they're signing at random because they don't really know how to have language the way that we have language. So it's a lot of clever Hans overinterpreting hmm. what's going on, and they haven't they haven't been able to break beyond that stage. You know, it's just, yes, they've learned sign language. They've associated it with certain stuff. It's like hitting a buzzer and knowing that that buzzer gives you food. You know, that's, it's like a little bit more sophisticated version of that. But they just, I guess they just don't have language is, is, I think what it is. Yeah. No, there's a couple of to. other,
4: couple of other interesting things. One that the, uh, there's a lot of organizations and a lot of people. I left all that information out because it would just be, become too cumbersome to get into all of it. But the, the organization that is managing Coco has had a lot of controversy, lots of things going on, like a lot of people quitting and former employees saying that they don't take care of the animals correctly and that, you know, there's a lot of pseudoscience there. Like they, you know, Patterson was hiring this woman to come in to do ridiculous things like Reiki and all this other stuff to Coco and, mm-hmm. you know, ridiculous amounts of weird nutrition and, you know, they let Coco eat a lot of things she shouldn't eat. It's all sorts of stuff like that. They don't let the thing that bothered me the most, though, other than the abuse of the animals, if it's even happening, you know, I, I'm just questioning what, what's true and what's not true in these reports. But the thing, one of the things I really don't like is that the papers that they wrote, and they didn't actually do that many papers since the early 70s, which is crazy. Like, you figure they'd have a ton of research over the past 30 years. They don't, they don't have a lot. And they're not sharing their studies with outside scientists. So mm-hmm. that's that's there's that's wrong. A lot of I'm sorry, but there. Yeah. that's wrong. There's a lot of things there that I don't like and that that make me question the overall quality of the of the organization and the people involved. I mean, I'd like a real study to be done just to to conclude
3: it. And, and not just that, Jay. For me, the real clincher was the fact that the research has dried up. Nobody's really doing that anymore. Why? Because there's nothing was coming of it.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's, so it's that's pretty clear. Saying. It really is a good. So. It, it, it yeah. points
3: to it
4: seemingly points to that fact. So again, now I don't know. I'm not speaking from authority. I've I'm, I've done quite a bit of reading here, and it's I find I'm uncovering a lot of questioning and a lot of skepticism, which I think is fine. Let's let's encourage the
2: skepticism, but let's let's get some answers finally. Yeah, but the answer may just be negative, and people don't. They're not satisfied with that answer. Yeah, that's yeah. That might be the simple explanation.
1: Yeah, nobody wants to rewrite Planet of the Apes again. <laughs> 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 I don't get me Leave shnited. well enough alone. All right, well, Evan. Uh, doctor. Let's move on to Who's
2: That Noisy?
0: Okay. So what we're going to do uh, is because we are recording this not long after we recorded the, the last episode. This will be episode number 477. I won't be able to play for you, the correct answer from 476, because we don't have it yet. But what I will play for you is the current one. And then we'll get caught up after Dragon Con as a week goes by and so yeah. forth. I promise promise you all. But it gives everyone extra time to guess. So that's the nice thing about having these uh, two- and three-week uh, intervals. So here we go. Let's see if you recognize this voice. And I meant to write down the transcript of it in case you couldn't hear it clearly enough. But I didn't do that. So, well, let's see how you do. Here we go. Who's that noisy? We need science In the ten years ahead, they say we need them by thousands more than we're now presently planning to have. We need scientists, is the point of that clip. But who said that? So do your best, give it a guess, whatever you think, it, or whomever you think it might be, and send us your answer at wtn at skepticsguide.org. That's our email address for all things Who's That Noisy related. Or you can go ahead and post on our message boards, and that is sguforums.com. Look for the sub-thread called Who's That Noisy, episode 477. Good luck, everyone.
2: Thanks, Evan. All right. We're going to do a Name That Logical Fallacy this week. This uh, is based on uh, a question that we got from Chris Jodry from Malden, Massachusetts. And Chris writes, Carol, shakeshaft and sexual abuse in public schools. Hi guys, I was having a casual online debate recently and was criticized for hating on Catholic priests for their sex abuse escapades. I was made aware of a study done in 2004 suggesting that there is 100 times more abuse in the U.S. public school systems than in the Catholic Church. Many websites refer to the study in defense of the Catholic Church. I couldn't find much contradicting the notion just to mention that harassment was lumped in with molestation, making the numbers a bit inflated. I was wondering, what you know about this topic, whether the study is valid the way it is being cited, and whether I should stop bringing up Catholic priest-altar boy relations in casual debates. And is this as major a problem in the school systems, as the study suggests? So, talking here about the claim that because the study shows that there is abuse in public schools, that we shouldn't criticize either Catholic priests or the Catholic Church for... Some of the abuse that took place there. So, what do you guys think about that?
3: Well, for me, the first thing that popped out is just a hundred times more abuse in U.S. public school systems. To me, that seemed like a um, apples and oranges fallacy. Um, it's a hundred yeah. times more. What really? Are, uh, what are you really comparing here? I mean, the it's school system. a bad sy- analogy. The, yeah, the school the school system is gargantuan compared to uh, compared to how many Catholic priests there are. So, without doing any research right. into that, that's the first thing that leaped out.
1: Also it's just a non sequitur. There's w- something worse happening over there is not at all a logical response to a discussion of something bad happening here. Yeah, that mean obviously that's the two it's a two, two two quoque
2: logical fallacy. Yes, well, yes. It's,
3: at two. Yeah,
2: it's uh which that's means a, that well you do it too. I may be wrong but somebody else is wrong too so it's okay. Mm. Well, no, it's it, that is incorrect invalid logic. Oh, yeah, that doesn't that's not good. Yeah, no, it doesn't work. <laughs> And yeah, what are they actually comparing? Uh, is it the amount, the rate? Are they equating, you know, are they talking about any kind of like mild sexual harassment with, uh, full-blown sexual abuse? Are they equating those two things? So there might be a false equivalency argument in there as well. Anything else? I mean, I'd see, I think there's a lot of logical fallacies hiding in that, that, uh, argument there. So by the way, the 2004 study, uh, was done by Carol Shakeshaft showed that nearly ten percent of US public school students or four point five million students had been the victims of either sexual harassment, rape, or sexual abuse. So it's the sexual harassment thing yeah. that that's could be you know massively inflating the numbers. And right. is, it, is it really meaningful even to include those things together? You know, because it's such a continuum
1: there. I couldn't find anything supporting it. the the study itself seemed pretty rigorous. But, you know, having said all that, that
2: argument is is a bad one for all the reasons that we stated. There is a legitimate argument to be made. And the question is, are Catholic priests more likely per capita to abuse children than other professionals in similar positions? And there what I found is that, well, we don't really know is the short answer and that we don't have any rigorous statistics showing that there is – But what evidence we do have suggests that the percentage of Catholic priests abusing children is probably no greater than the percentage of other ministers. So it doesn't seem to be any worse in one denomination over another, or even in other professions. What the key element is, is that you know, would-be pedophiles seek out positions in which they are in a position of leadership where they have access to children, are likely to be trusted, and are likely to have situations in which they are alone with the children. And so that's where they tend to collect. Yet still, in it, my impression is that the real criticism of the Catholic Church is not that priests have abused kids— because that, again, that occurs in any any profession where, again as I said, where adults can have access to children. Rather, it's in the church's official response that they appear to have been engaged in a cover-up, in moving priests around so that they can evade any kind of uh, legal entanglement, and that they knowingly continue to put children at risk to known pedophiles. So that's really where the catholic church has been singled out not just because abuse has occurred so i guess that's another fallacy in the argument in that it's a straw man in a way because it's not really the criticism of the catholic church yeah all right so thanks chris yeah i think that you're you're correct in pointing out that the argument is not valid so go ahead and continue to criticize the catholic church for allowing abuse to occur within their institution and actually you know trying to hide it So none of that behavior is justified by anything else that might happen elsewhere. Well, we're going to take a break from our live show at DragonCon to talk about one of our sponsors this week, Stamps.com.
1: It seems like there's no easy way to get all of your mailing and shipping done. If you're like me and you send out loads of stuff all the time, it can be hard because going to the post office takes up so much time uh postage meters cost so much money to lease and you have to pay all these hidden fees and do contracts and stuff like that it's really a bad situation which is why it's pretty awesome that there's stamps.com with stamps.com you know what you could do ev
4: tell me you could buy and print your own postage which is great so you could do this at any time and you know you have a printer and an internet connection you buy your postage you print it you use it it's just 15.99 a month
3: Wait, you don't need a postage meter or those uh, big clunky
4: machines or any of that stuff? Bob, in case you didn't know, you could even get postage discounts that you can't find at the post office. That's how good the service is. Go ahead and use our
0: promo code, SGU, for this special offer. A no-risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer, which includes a digital scale and up to $55 free postage. Don't wait.
2: Yep, go to stamps.com and use the offer code SGU. Just click the microphone at the top of the homepage, and you could save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. All right, guys, let's get back to our show.
0: It's time for Science
2: or Fiction. Each week I come up with Three science news items or facts. Two genuine and one fictitious. Then I challenge my of skeptics, to tell me which one they think is the fake. <laughs> this week, because we had so much fun last week, we're going to do four yeah. more items about pterosaurs. Haha. That's a very uh, no, funny joke. To la-
0: insert laugh track
2: here. You're not buying it? Okay. Three regular <laughs> news items. I'll, I'll go, I'll go up to plan B. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no theme, just news items. Here we go. Item number one. Astronomers have observed lightning strikes on the surface of the moon, apparently originating in the wispy lunar atmosphere. Item number two, scientists have discovered the first example of speciation occurring within a single group of animals sharing the same geographic area. And item number three, a team of chemists and biologists have developed a semi-artificial leaf that, for the first time, is able to turn light into energy faster than natural photosynthesis. Evan, go first.
0: Uh, lightning strikes on the surface of the moon. Astronomers have observed them. Apparently originating through the wispy lunar atmosphere. So the moon has a wispy atmosphere. I, I don't know that I've ever heard it referred to as wispy. Um, I know there's a scant, barely there, especially when you compare it to Earth kind of atmosphere going on, but uh, wispy, nah. Um, lightning strikes on the surface of the moon? Gosh, is that even possible? How, how would... How would that happen? You just need some a uh, couple of electrons floating around and uh, the right uh, catalyst to uh, maybe, maybe. <laughs> um, scientists have discovered next. Scientists discovered the first example of speciation occurring within a single group of animals sharing the same geographic area. This is the first example, huh? Within a single group of animals, huh? Same geographic area, huh? <laughs> okay. So there's three kind of sections to that one where if any part of it's wrong then the whole thing's wrong. I think that one might be collapsing under its own weight. Uh that's a lot to hold up, I think, um when looking at when looking at it like that. And then the last one, the scientists have developed a semi artificial leaf. What makes it semi artificial? Turn light into energy faster than natural photosynthesis. Well, I I, I kind of believe that. It's cool. What well, makes it semi-artificial, though? Turn light energy faster than natural photosynthesis. Faster than natural photosynthesis. That's something. Basically, so you would have had to, what, how long has photosynthesis been occurring on the planet, Bob? Oh, decades. Yeah, thanks, Bob. <laughs> uh, hundreds of millions of years, um, at least, uh, to be able to, to be able to create something that makes it go faster than photosynthesis. I don't know. I don't know. That one sounds extraordinary. I guess I'll go with my original speculation. I think the one about the speciation occurring is going to be incorrect. I think there's just too many moving parts in that one. And again, like I said, if one part of it's wrong, the whole thing's going to be wrong. That one's the fiction. Okay, Rebecca.
1: So the leaf one makes the most sense to me, uh, just because I know that... In the recent past, we've had other people claiming to develop uh, artificial leaves. So I can see that they might be able to speed the process up. And why wouldn't you be able to beat natural photosynthesis that evolved? And evolution is messy, while building things from scratch with the design in mind is not messy. So, yeah, why not? God God complex, I see. (laughs) I'm between what I'm saying is I could do it better uh <laughs> and by it, I mean the universe right no, so uh
0: it's called the, the Rebecca verse,
1: by the way, right, so I'm between lightning strikes on the moon. they've observed lightning strikes on the surface of the moon originating in the atmosphere. I don't know that's that's really fishy to me. I'm trying to think of all the things you would need for that. And also, not just to create the lightning, but to observe the lightning happening. To be pointing your telescope in the right place at the right time. I don't know. Like, that seems very odd to me. So I'm between that and the speciation one. First example of speciation occurring within a single group of animals sharing the same geographic area. Ooh, yeah, Evan's right. There's a lot of there's a lot of details there, any one of which could easily be wrong. So it's a coin flip for me. But you know what? Who cares? I'm completely losing every week this year. So Uh I, I can't get any worse. <laughs> so I'll uh, I'll go with Evan on this because the uh, well, hold on, <laughs> I'm really stuck on this. Like the lightning thing seems crazy, but maybe it's like a smaller effect, and it's different from. Maybe it's not like the storm that I'm picturing. No, nope. okay, I'm gonna go with the lightning one. That it just seems it seems crazy to me. Okay, Jay. Which one did you go for, Bob? <laughs> <laughs> <How's> it, <what laughs> would you
3: like to know?
4: I've been reading these as Evan and Rebecca were were going over them and there's a one thing I just can't get past and there's no atmosphere on the moon. So how the hell can there be lightning? Like where's what's generating the uh you know, without going into the complexities of lightning here on this show. Um, no, 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 under- please
1: do go <laughs> into the complexities. I would love to hear this. Well, there's a discharge. Telling your bluff, Jay. There, there's,
4: well, <laughs> the, 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 what's happening is, is there equal equalization, right? So there's a lightning strikes. It, it, it could go in any direction pretty much, right? It's, it's not just up and down or from the top down or whatever. And what, what it is, is it's, it's an equalization of charge. And, Without there being any 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 atmosphere and any in any like charge charges happening in the moon's atmosphere, like I'm sure there has a a very minute atmosphere. I I know it's not void of atmosphere, but there's just not enough atmosphere, in my opinion, for there to be a lightning strike. I just can't get past that. The second one uh, about the specie speciation speciation speciation. Thank you. I mean, I would imagine that. That it has to happen eventually, you know, that s- some evolution has to take place, even if there isn't uh, a wide variety of animals and they're in the same location, that eventually some type, something will happen to have some evolution take place. Um, and then that last one, yeah, that, well, you know, when you say it's partially a fake leaf, like, you know, maybe they're genetically modifying it and they're testing out some different things and they came up with something that enhances, um, the photosynthesis. I don't see that being that out of the realm of possibility. So, yeah, I'm going to go with Rebecca and say the lightning one's a fake.
2: And Bob. All
3: right, uh, the photosynthesis, yeah, I don't have a problem with it being faster. Uh, you guys made a lot of sense when you when you described this. Um, I could see it. I would suspect that it, it might be uh, more efficient but not as copious. Uh, one and two, I, I like everyone else, I have the biggest problems with them, which might be an argument for me to pick three. Because that would be uh, perfect for Steve—two crazy ones and one that just seems reasonable—and no one's going to go for it, right? So uh, if, that ha- if that happens, I'm going to be pissed because mm-hmm. I'm going to pick one or two. Um, the uh, the speciation one, yeah, that just should—I mean, yeah—the odds of of being there when that happens and the fact that it's a single it's a single group in the same geographic area—that's yeah—that doesn't make much sense either. Because typically, uh, th- that's a splinter group that's kind of isolated. Um, and they're the ones that would uh, would sp- turn into a different species. Uh, but I just can't get past the moon one. Uh, it does have an atmosphere. It wispy is is ri- a ridiculous adjective to use because imagine uh, taking a baseball stadium worth of air and spreading it out over the entire moon. That's what we're talking about. That's like uber wispy. So I mean, <laughs> I just don't think you're going to get you know much of a charge built up there. That, that's going to do anything. Now, maybe the regolith, you know, maybe after a, an, an impact, a meteor impact, there's regolith that can build up charges and you could have some sort of discharge there. I suspect that if it happens, that's why it would happen. Uh, shit, did I just talk myself out of that one? No, I think that even that would be so tiny. I just got a huge problem with it. There's got to be something with the with the species one that, that makes this happen. If it happened, that'd be awesome. But I mean... I'm assuming when you say they, there was speciation that they can no longer mate and produce fertile young. I mean, that's one that's of the That's the definition. That's the classic definition. And they just happened to find that? Like, damn. Ah. All right. Screw it. Moon fiction. <laughs>
4: okay. There we go.
3: <laughs>
2: all right. Well, you all agree. Yes. That a team of chemists and biologists have developed a semi-artificial leaf that, for the first time, is able to turn light into energy faster than natural photosynthesis. All think that one is science, and that one is... Better be. Science. all right Yeah, baby.
3: How, how fast? How much more efficient? You're all
2: talking? correct so far.
3: Yeah. So, yeah. It's always tr- 50-50 every week. It's 50 <laughs> and I lose.
0: Well, that's the good thing about this game. You yeah, always get one right. Look out so it that way is away. it
1: time to institute a, a Monty Hall? <laughs> I do. <laughs> Monty Hall. A pr- yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> oh, can so we? These are <laughs> chemists and biologists from Ruhr University, Bochum. Is that B O C H U M? Bochum? Yeah, Bochum. Bochum. Bochum, Bochum resulted in <laughs> oh, uh, a new a- method mm. of making bio photovoltaics. Who's that's that? B O, Steve. B O, thank you. It's It's. Semi artificial because it's still using proteins and stuff. But the challenge was in handling the protein that has both photo, that has both hydrophilic and hydrophobic domains. And you got to get them to sort of coexist. So, um, Dr. Nicholas Plumer and Professor Dr. Wolfgang Schumann, (laughs) their teams developed a a (laughs) complex electron conducting materials. That they call redox hydrogels that have stimuli responsive properties. Hydrogels I just get that. Um, so then, it, essentially, they were able to use that to embed the um, the proteins in there to make the you know the natural that uh, and then tune them to the local environment. And the result was able to engage an electron transfer that exceeded. For the first time, rates observed in natural photosynthesis. Now they were also able to improve their system to the point they went from they're saying nanovolt, nanowatts to microwatts in terms of how much energy they're able to generate. They're still not anywhere near silicon-based photovoltaics, right, Bob? They're hoping to scale up five to ten years. Yeah. they're saying this might have uh, they don't you know it's hard to say where this is going to end up, but um, even at this level, even like the microwatt range or maybe uses. You know, you're not going to be putting these on, on your rooftop, but they, you could make cheap, flexible solar cells that might have applications, some some applications that, you know, would, would be where there would be an advantage over the silicon-based ones. But
1: I'm really looking forward to uh, all of our shows having transcripts so that we can go back five years and yeah, yeah. search five to ten years <laughs> exactly. in the transcript just to do some follow-ups. Mm-hmm. That would be great.
2: This is what uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson was talking about on Cosmos about making artificial leaves who so could run the world. There's a lot of I think there's a lot of researchers working on this kind of technology, basically artificial photosynthesis. So, hopefully, it will pan out eventually. Okay, let's Do go it. back to number one. Astronomers have observed lightning strikes on the surface of the moon, apparently originating in the wispy lunar atmosphere. Bob thinks that should be uber wispy lunar atmosphere. Evan thinks this one is real, the rest of you think this one is fiction, and this one is you know, actually the moon does have an atmosphere. You no. know, I was about to
1: congratulate you on not doing your little jokey thing.
3: I knew it was coming. But and this, then you
1: didn't. But you I had to do it, it anyway. for this one. I know I did it. So
2: how how dense do you think the earth the moon's atmosphere is compared to the Earth's? Twenty five.
0: Well, if you, the air of a baseball stadium, I hear if you spread that over the It's moon, less than
2: one hundred trillionth. Of an atmosphere. Okay. At sea level. At yeah. sea level. So, so did do these, do these molecules even bump into each other? So this one is... Say it. The fiction. It. Yes, baby. Yay. Yes. All right. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> <yet>. Finally. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this <laughs> is totally bogus. <laughs> it's, not, it's not nearly enough atmosphere on the moon for this to happen. But this is based on a real item. There was a news item, Electrical Sparks... May alter the evolution of lunar soil. So there is a kind of electrical discharge on the moon. It's just not a lightning from the atmosphere because uh, just there's just not enough. You know, the atmosphere of the moon is, as Bob says, it's barely there. You couldn't really hold on to enough energy to get it. I get said a spark that in. first, but, so Bob was right. Well, that's
3: <laughs> it. Jay, I, had, <laughs> I, I had the back. example Jay of the I baseball said stadium it first too. So at-
2: but from the cosmic rays hitting the regolith. Can build up an electric charge. I knew it. I knew that. And yeah, that, I and then it. set off a little spark that will go through the soil, through the regolith, and will, could actually alter the evolution of the regolith over time, the, you know, the, the change in that regolith. So, um, in terms of figuring out what the regolith, regolith is like, we might have to take this new process into consideration. And for some reason, I wasn't fully, um, able to understand it. This would be more prominent at the poles especially in craters that would be shielded from, from light. It might have an effect on, for example, the uh, retention of water in these parts of the moon. So very interesting. So there's sparks on the moon, but not lightning. <laughs> All right, so, go, oh, to, go
3: to two. I'm dying for two. What the hell? All right, let's go. Number two matter, scientists matter have discovered the tail.
2: first example of speciation occurring within a, a single group of animals sharing the same geographic area. And, of course, this one is science. Do you know what you call that? The hell do you mean of course, because I've already <laughs> revealed the fiction. So, oh, is that <laughs> yeah. why? Okay, in that context, I yeah.
0: suppose. He was saying like, oh, every so yes, thing, it every is. It is normally
2: this, uh, speciation occurs be- because two g- populations of the same species become isolated in some way, geographically isolated. So basically, they can't. They physically are not able to interbreed anymore. And then over time, they drift apart uh or evolve apart to the point where they're no longer able to reproduce and therefore they are different species. That is called allopatry. Allopatry when the when speciation occurs in separate groups. But there okay. has been a hypothetical alternate process called sympatry or sympatric speciation, uh, which has been very difficult to demonstrate that it happens where uh, one population evolves into two species even though they're physically in contact with each other. So why does that happen? That's a good question. So what scientists have discovered is a single colony of ants in which one part of the colony evolved to be parasitic on the other part. Whoa. Oh
1: that's that's cool. messed up. Yeah.
2: So it was the parasitic lifestyle. Oh, it's like a
1: zombie outbreak. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I was thinking of the, uh, the Eloy and the Morlocks. Well, about yeah, ants. Yeah. Um, I was,
3: I wasn't even uh, thinking ants. I, why am I thinking yeah, like an- I, antelopes or some big yeah, I figured, I figured <laughs> if I
2: said ants, it would make it a little easier because you'd think, oh yeah, ant colonies could do weird stuff. Um, so the species, the species that is the original, I don't know if you, original is probably accurate, but that's, uh, Mycosapurus goldii. So this is a species of ant that, Grows fungus that actually farms fungus to eat, and the parasitic species is Mycosapurus castrator.
3: Ooh, that sounds nasty. Yeah,
1: not good. Sounds like my (laughs) kind (laughs)
2: of (laughs) ant. So they were able to demonstrate that they are related; that they are had they evolved from the same ancestor. Um, so it's quite possible this is an example of sympatry where the parasite evolved right in the colony with the species on which it is parasitic.
3: Oh, you see, I and there again, I'm assuming it's a bigger animal and they actually saw it happen within like, you know, the past generation time. Why, why would you think that? Well, that's what
2: you've led us to believe.
1: No, I had the same thought. Like… Yeah, I mean, it seemed ridiculous, Steve. That's the whole point. (laughs) Yeah,
2: I know. Well, you you inferred incorrectly. They discovered it because of genetic relatedness. But this did happen over the last 37,000 years, which is a very short time scale on evolutionary uh, scales. There are only 37,000 years. So, yeah, very cool. Sympatry. not many people know what that is. And there you have it. And there you have it. But yeah, but the, you know, the lightning on the moon, you guys sniffed that out. It was too obvious. I mean, it it, it reeked. (laughs) But you, but still you struggled. So yes, I, you struggled. And, and, That's and I'm sure you enjoyed the struggle. I, I, did. I would like
1: to say that I struggled because of a severe lack of self-esteem regarding <laughs> science or fiction this year. Yes, <laughs> I've beaten you
2: down enough that now you it's have. easy to befuddle like a you,
1: beaten dog, <laughs> Steve. Do you know. know how we're all doing, by the way. I have no oh, idea. I don't even. Somebody's going to write in. I'm not even going to open that email. I don't want to see it. You I have it. <laughs> I have multiple
3: people that are tracking it in real time. So, well, what do you got, I've Bob? Got Bob? There Where there are, are we at? To do? I don't know.
1: I don't care.
0: <laughs> if i find yeah, out i'll just cry you. so i'm not even asking sums, sums it up uh, for somebody me somebody email me
4: please and let me know I bob i bet you're oh, winning god
0: you no I so. I, i'm podcasting less, with neurotic bros i heard I jay was in, in the on. lead which is like shocking oh, like,
3: so weird. what, <laughs> <isn't> it? what, <laughs> what is it what is us thank you oh uh, boy steve I, I have a quote and i was lying i do care i just don't want to know
4: of course
0: you care Jay. Dr. St-
4: Dr. Steve. Jay, give me a quote. From one of my absolute favorite scientists of all time, Richard Feynman. Yeah, baby. Sci- this is a little longer than normal, but it's, it's worth it. Ready? That's what he said. Scientific <laughs> method is based on the principle that observation is the judge of whether something is so or not. All other aspects and characteristics of science can be understood directly when we understand that observation is the ultimate and final judge of the truth of an idea. Or, put another way, the exception proves that the rule is wrong. That is the principle of science. If there is an exception to any rule and if it can be proved by observation, that rule is wrong. So the more specific the rule, the more powerful it is, the more liable it is to exceptions, and the more interesting and valuable it is to check. The method is try and see and accumulate the information and so on. And so the question, if I do it, what will happen, is typically scientific question.
2: That is, that was long, you're right. <laughs> yeah, you like long, it? Long, but worth it. It was. The journey was long, but the destination was worth it. Evan, what did you ask? Uh, who, who said this again? Richard Feynman! <laughs> <laughs> so you know what's interesting is the saying, the exception proves the rule. Do you know what that means?
1: It means that the exception tests the rule. That's Proved correct. being a synonym for test. Booyah! That's correct. Very good, <laughs> Rebecca. Like
2: proving grounds,
1: yeah. <laughs> I don't know why that amused me so much to know the answer, I think because I'm still riding this high from science or fiction (laughs) Well, it's just
2: one of those irksome things, like the exception proves the rule, it makes no sense and people just interpret it the incorrect way because it's like an archaic use of the word prove that that, that people don't use it but yeah, but it makes sense, yeah, the exception tests the rule.
0: Yeah, like when you say the shoe's on the other hand now, (laughs) same thing
2: Right, or one fell swoop I like that one. I like that one. You know what "fell" means? No. It means kill him, it no. means deadly. I can spell it. Huh? Kill oh, cool, yeah, cool. Fell
0: fel your opponent.
2: Right. Okay. Thanks everyone for joining me. You're yeah, welcome. Thank please. you, Steve. Thank you. Thank you. Yep. Yeah. We're, we're actually Dragon Con. at DragonCon, right? Yes. Right now, while well, you're, you're listening to this episode as it goes up, we are at DragonCon. So come over and say hi. Yeah. Come say hi. We'll hang. Yep. And until next week, this is your Skeptics Guide to the Universe. <laughs> The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions Dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking For more information on this and other episodes Please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org Where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum and other content You can send us feedback or questions to info@theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible. And now that the show's over, don't forget to sign up for your free account with Personal Capital right now. With Personal Capital, you'll finally be able to see all your accounts in one place and get a clear view of everything you own. To sign up for free, go to theskepticsguide.org and click on the Personal Capital banner. Or go to personalcapital.com forward slash SGU. Personal Capital, less fees, more G's.